The ACA deadline was March 31st, 2014, not even two weeks ago, and here we are, playing Shin Koha. What kind of health benefits do you want when you're a high school gangster? What's the point of health anyway, and why don't we just have a scoring system? Tonight, on the Commune Podcast. I've been doing well. Alright, glad to hear. Uh, Shouty, how have you been doing? Itchy. Zanrio, how have you been doing since the last time? I've been doing okay. Alright, glad to hear. And finally, yourself? I've been doing all kinds of things. Uh, I also will not ask about that. <laughs> so, uh, Wario fan, what games have you been playing since last time? Oh, I've, uh, I've been playing uh, Shadow of the Colossus, High Definition Edition. Is that the one that comes with Eco? In America, yes. Wait, you get to fight Eco? Oh, yeah, it's... Uh, you get to fight a colossal Eco. Oh, that's Titans. awesome. Wow, that would fix two games that I didn't like at all. So, Wario fan, what did you think of uh, Shadow of the Colossus? Well, you know, I played it uh, originally back in the PS2 days and I thought it was uh, pretty great and now it's just uh, very pretty and also great but I, I like the uh, uh, the whole thing where it's just you know pretty much pure boss rush so you like the bosses what about the running around in between I guess on the one hand I'm just you know too anxious to get to the next boss to want to explore the world a bit more you know I just want to get right to the next fight which I guess part of it's finding the Colossus in the first place, I guess, but, you know, whatever. I enjoyed it for what it was, and I definitely appreciated that they gave you a pointer directly to the boss. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that part's convenient. <clears throat> it's a crazy taxi. Shadow <laughs> 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 Boss is literally crazy taxi. That's crazy. it. That's the comparison we need. <laughs> How do you do that? Uh, um, oh, is the frame rate any better? Uh, uh I, yeah. I guess so. I mean, I didn't, you know, I, I haven't played the PS2 one in a long time, but I don't recall frame rate being a problem, but I imagine it's something that was fixed here. Frame rate was not like a performance problem, like you didn't get slowdown, but it would, the action just looked kind of weird. It's like, the camera guy's shutter speed wasn't there what, sometimes. What, now, they did alter something, though. They altered uh, the the grip that Wander has. He's a little weaker now. It can be kind of annoying, especially when you're doing the time attacks. It's like you're playing Shadow of the Co-op. <laughs> <laughs> That's strange. Like, they didn't think it was balanced well enough with the grip as it is? I I don't really know what, what happened there. Maybe they thought it was too easy. Uh, I I don't know if that was, you know, the, the Japanese team that thought that or the, uh, the the people porting it over that thought that, or maybe it was just a glitch that happened when they ported it over. That maybe sounds like it, a working designs thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the uh, the grip's weaker in this one, and uh, it's just you're, you're stumbling around everywhere. It's just it can be real a real pain. 
So, I, I won't throw out my PS2 version yet. <laughs> Sanrio, what games have you been playing since last time? Yes, I've been playing uh, Lathan vs. Cry. And how's that been going so far? It's a great game. I really like it. Does it lean more towards Phoenix Wright or Professor Layton, or is it like a blend? Well, at first it seems a bit more like Layton, I guess. Maybe just those sections feel longer. But then again, I haven't finished the game yet, so I don't really know how the rest will be. I see. So uh, at a certain point, Professor Layton may be addressing someone on the defense stand. <laughs> <laughs> But the latent puzzles are significantly easier than any other latent game. Yeah, yeah, I I noticed that, and yeah, it's true. So, so that might might be because I've played so many latent games before, so I'm used to the puzzles. Mm. I think there might be a different reason for it. That game was made in between uh, latent five and latent six, so. I think they wanted to save their best puzzles for when Layton 6 was coming out. And it just so happened that uh, for localization, it just the timing was different. Now that game's coming out after Layton 6. I mean, that's, that's a good theory. They only have enough puzzles for 6 games, not 7. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my thought would have been, like, if you have a Phoenix Wright crowd buying this game, you kind of don't want to use your hardcore stuff on them. They're newbies. Yeah, true. But the trial part... They are just as hard as the usual trials are okay. about the same difficulty, I think. So would you recommend it? Yes. Yes, I will recommend it. Alright. Uh, yourself, what have you been playing since last time? I haven't put any serious time into any game uh, in particular, but yesterday I spent some quality time with Taito Legends, which was an anthology of a bunch of 80s Taito games, uh, arcade games, that was released on PS2. So there are 20-some games on there, and I just went through testing them all out. Uh, and I found a couple pretty interesting ones, like uh, Rastan. That's a side-scrolling action platformer, sort of uh, in the vein of Ghouls and Ghosts just with a shorter attack. If you've ever played or uh, are familiar with the recent indie game, Volgar the Viking, Volgar uh, was, uh, let's just say, clearly based on Rastan. <laughs> and there were some other ones like Gladiator, an early combat game uh, that had, it was kind of a mix of like Punch-Out and Karateka and Space Gun, great title there. Uh, I believe was a light gun shooter from 1990, maybe, where you could, like, dismember enemies. That was pretty cool. Although, of course, playing it without a light gun was not too exciting. Whenever I see those arcade collections, I always think it's going to be one of those things where I play maybe one or two of the games in it, and the rest is just going to be really frilly gameplay that I could never get into. But yeah, it's been... As a matter of fact, I bought this one actually just because I wanted to play the Space Invaders games. But that's the nice thing that I like about them, that I usually do go in with that expectation. Like, I actually bought the second collection, Tidal Legends 2 as well, simply because it had Darius Gaiden, and it cost the same as buying Darius Gaiden on Virtual Console. <laughs> and it's like, 
Okay, so there's one game I'm going to spend a lot of time on, and the rest, you know, maybe there'll be uh, something I can kill a few minutes with, but I'll probably never return to. But you do, every once in a while, stumble across something like this, and or stumble across something interesting like uh, Gladiator or something, uh, which is why I like them. There's always some hidden treasure that you've never heard of and you don't know where to look for. Okay. Um, I'm not sure Darius Gaiden is on Virtual Console. Oh, is it not? I know there's Darius Twin, maybe Darius Force. I I can answer that. Oh, yeah, that's right. Gaiden's the arcade one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Twin's the one that's on Virtual Console. Oh, we've played through Gaiden, haven't we, Golem? That's at the Saturn one, right? The one with uh, 3D models. Yeah. Yeah, we have, and it was... Boring. Hard to the point where I didn't play. I just sort of fed quarters. Alright. Well, <laughs> there were other games in that collection I was buying it for, too, not just that. In general, I liked Darius. It was just that one. Maybe because it was the arcade version and not a console port. It was really overwhelming. Yeah. Arcade versions are not always excellently balanced, or Maybe they are excellently balanced, just not for the type of gameplay experience that I'm looking for. Excellently balanced for quarters. Yeah. All right, well, glad to hear. Finally, Shouty, what have you been playing since last time? Whenever I can spare the time, usually in transit, I've been playing Banshee's Last Cry on iOS, which is like a digital choose-your-own-adventure novel. And I think this is... A learning moment for me in my life where I figure out how to figure out murder mysteries because I have to keep a mental list of every single character that's appeared in the story and determine whether or not that they may be the murderer. Yeah, I think that's how it works in real life. So yeah. is this like a skill you've started applying to your real life? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't have to tell you anything. <laughs> Is that going to go in the notebook you keep on on, on me? <laughs> He's probably got a pretty long list of suspects at this point. <laughs> uh, why are you, like, uh, what got you into Banshee's Last Cry, though? Actually, Wario Fan recommended it to me. Uh-oh. I be- because Can I tell them, Wario Fan? Yeah. All right, fine. Uh, Arno on Game Center CX is going to do it. Oh, and, he's, and I didn't want to be spoiled for it, and neither did he, so I just had to get it, and it on iOS. So it's accessible. a port of a retro game? It It's a game that's had a lot of ports everywhere. Um, Arno's going to play it on the on the Super Famicom. Okay. But it's been localized for the first time for us on iOS. That's pretty cool. Who who localized it? Axis. Axis. Oh, the, uh, that's Guilty Gear, am I right? Yeah, they publish that. Okay. So they're pretty cool dudes. And people. Yeah, don't don't be racist there or anything. We all know, on one level or another, that games structure themselves that you have to do some significant part all in one go. Like a level in Mario, or a dungeon in an RPG. 
And when I say all in one go, I think we all kind of know, on one level or another, that losing all my health means I have to go and take another go. This time, we meditated on the nature of health in games and how it affected our play and experience. It may seem like a cut and dry topic, but you ought to keep your ears peeled. Insightful comments will hop out at you. Last week we had a pretty dense, uh, data-driven podcast where, uh, you know, I broke out... Criticizing my questions? (laughs) No, everything has its place where I, I was able to break out a table... And like put a check mark next to every time someone mentioned a guard kick and stuff like that. Sounds like you're making fun of me right now. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of something that would be flattering to say, and it's not coming to me. <laughs> it doesn't have to be Don't flattering. Worry. It doesn't have to be insulting. I will spin it against you either way. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like a hurricane kick. Um, so. I also like to complement these topics against one another. And uh, to go with the more data-driven podcast, I thought we could touch on a more abstract, uh, seeing-the-forest type of approach. And with that in mind, I wanted to ask, uh, how do you think Shinnikitsu Koha handles player feedback? Sanrio, um, can yeah. you... If someone asked... What methods does Shinnikitsu Koha of influencing how the player plays? What would your first thought be? Just like that. Uh, That's a um, really vague question. <laughs> yes, I, I'm not even sure what, what you mean by that. So I'd say, for example, um, it uh, encourages you to try out different attacks and combos if something doesn't work all the time. So, I would actually disagree and say it does not encourage you to try everything. Well, um, I mean, at that level of granularity, you can't say it does. It encourages it through the introduction of different enemies. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yes. Mm. Then, other than that, I'm not sure what to say. So you would say that, like, uh, when you've happened upon a strategy that worked, the game might throw you a curveball, and suddenly this enemy knows how to deal with jump kicks, and you'd have to try something else. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like that. Okay. That I could try doesn't work as well as that new enemy, and you have to try something else. So with that in mind, the underlying thought there is that Shinnikitsu Koha employs health in order to get you to work in specific ways because uh if you use the jump kick on the enemy that doesn't that it doesn't work against, uh the way it lets you know it doesn't work is by damaging you, or at the very least, if the enemy blocks, you don't do damage. Um so there's two factors there, your own health and the enemy's health. So, Wario fan, in general, what what skills would you say that Shinnikitsu Koha values, given its approach to health, both your own and your enemy's health? 
Hmm. Like uh, skills that can be applied to games as a whole, or just that game? Uh, it doesn't matter either way, but try to phrase them, I guess, as generically as possible. Uh, I guess, um, huh. I would say maybe it gives you ideas on how to play uh, beat-em-ups uh, defensively or offensively. Okay, and so when you say offensively, um, what skills are involved there? Hitting. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, just uh, getting down uh, certain combos and the timing of when to use those combos and whatnot. Like, I mean, uh, if those, if there's, um, I mean, it doesn't have to apply to this game, I suppose, but if there's like some ultimate HP draining attack that you have and that could be offset by, uh, by some annoying enemy with, that keeps stabbing at you with a knife, then, uh, you want to wait till he's not stabbing at you to unleash your, your moves. So it encourages, uh, observing enemy patterns and learning when your tactics are not viable. Yes. Okay. Did anyone else have any thoughts on uh, how to approach offense? I think there's also an element of readability, um, <laughs> knowing what what certain movements of a enemy's sprite might indicate what for what you need to do next, whether it's going on the offense or the defense, whether it's starting up a combo or blocking there is a thing in Shinoketsu Koha where uh, if you can read what an enemy is doing, it's a very special moment, right? Yeah, I yeah. don't think they normally have tells. I, well, maybe they're not. I, I, maybe they're more subtle than than just, you know, making a new spray animation for the tell. So, like, if an enemy is walking slowly versus... Well, if an enemy is walking towards you versus an enemy walking away from you or something like that. Yeah, or if they're just dashing towards you. Okay. Yeah, I guess that counts. It's a very fleeting example, though. And what skills did Shinoketsu Koha uh, encourage with the defensive approach, not getting damaged? There's mobility... I think with Misuzu, it taught you how to move around her. Uh, spatial awareness. Yeah, that's really it. Uh, the, what I guess fighting game players would call zanning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you have areas where you're vulnerable, areas from which you can take attack, areas from areas where you can attack. I guess. Uh, if we were in a picture format, I would show a diagram, except I wouldn't because I'd be too lazy to make it, but you could color the space based on where, like, you're vulnerable to certain attacks and where you are able to attack enemies, and you kind of construct that, I think, subconsciously in a probabilistic way, like... I don't want an enemy behind me because I can't attack an enemy behind me and because you can't. Well, actually, <laughs> you can attack an enemy directly behind you. Yeah. Yeah, so there's greater subtlety to it. That's a good point. That 
you can attack an enemy from behind you, but uh, it's not just about the space of it. So, for instance, if you're fighting Nisuzu, uh, and you're thinking, can I use Ricky's guard kick? You would imagine, well, the guard kick goes X pixels out, and Nisuzu's attack goes plus five pixels. And so you would say, well, her attack is longer than mine, meaning she'll get past my attack. And you won't reach her 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 box. Or something, yeah. (laughs) You have to imagine the uh, underlying zones there. Right. I was also wondering, Shouty, you can't see how much damage you're doing to enemies. So, do you think that affected how you played the game? Um, yeah, it, it, um... I guess what I had was a mental health bar. Oh, like Eternal Darkness. <laughs> that's, that's what I was thinking about. That or somewhere he went to get a drink with some, uh, you know, schizophrenics. <laughs> a health bar for my mental health. No, but, like, I, I sort of determined how long it would take to defeat an enemy, and I would sort of use that to apply to different other encounters, like, okay, it's going to take around this amount of time to defeat someone, and maybe I can try doing it faster or slower. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd try to do it faster and more efficiently, but like, if I realize I'm taking a while, it's because I haven't been hitting them. I've been, been I've been more defensive. Did you prioritize certain moves as a result, though? Well, you mean like spamming them? Did you ever get the sense that one move was weaker than another? Probably, yeah. Since I spammed a lot of moves. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 but, that demonstrates how I feel about the, the effect, the effectiveness of different attacks. Yeah, I think like Shadi's saying, I think the health bar that you get in your head is like a time bar, basically, or, uh, you know, a timer on any enemy, and if you decide to try fighting this enemy with a lot of kicks and he has a shorter lifespan, then, yeah, I derived from that that kicks did more damage. In this particular instance, the only attack that ever seemed to do more damage to me were special attacks. I didn't really get a distinction between normal attacks or from one special attack to another. I'm sure there are probably subtle distinctions in there. But like jump attacks, for instance. You know that if you do jump attacks, an enemy lasts longer. So, you know, the jump attack doesn't do very much damage. But then again, when you take away the focus on health, it doesn't matter whether the jump attack does less damage or it's just that the jump attack takes a lot of while, or takes a lot of time for you to recover from and for the enemy to get back up and for you to be able to hit them again. It still takes a long time to fight them. So it sort of ends up equating efficient tactics with, uh, damaging tactics when you don't make the player think about health. I see. So one hypothetical example would be, say a punch does five damage, and a jump kick does 15 damage. And if 
the amount of time it takes me to perform one jump kick is equal to the amount of time it takes me to perform three punches, then they would be equal. Right. On the time scale health bar. Right. But realistically, in Shinoketsu, it takes much longer to do a jump kick. So, you know, if you wanted to use whatever pretend numbers, then you get different results for the health bar or the time bar, basically. Like, they do the same amount of damage, but the jump kick takes longer. Yeah. So then the interesting thing becomes uh, they are balanced not by way of time versus damage on the enemy, but uh, time versus damage on you, where a punch leaves you more open to damage. Yeah, can I just mention one thing about the, um, how the, you can see enemies health? Yeah. Yes, uh, because, um, when I play those sorts of games and they show the enemy's health bar, sometimes I, when the enemy has very little life left and I, I have a decent amount left, then Sometimes I just let my guard down a bit in the end because, say, I'm gonna win this soon anyway. Well, in this game, I just had no way to know. So, I can't, I can't do that. So it keeps you tense. Yes. So it keeps your play, um, your skill, your skill level consistent. Yeah, it actually does. Yeah. That might actually that that might actually be better if the game wants you to get good at it. Yeah, true. So um, a few times I really wish um, they would have shown the health bars just so I'd see how just how long I had left. <laughs> yeah, with bosses. And, it's oh man, kind of this is be going on forever. When I'm trying mm-hmm. to beat a boss, it feels like it takes forever. But when I finally hear that groan, there's such a sense of relief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, take, is that one gonna go in the clips archive? <laughs> <laughs> that does sound pretty, um, sketchy out of context. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're into that sort of thing, Golem. <laughs> we don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> That is interesting that seeing your opponent's health has an influence on your strategy. I think it's somewhat undermined in uh, this game by, or what Zanry was saying is somewhat undermined by the continuous continue points. Like, I never cared that much about dying because I knew I was going to come back and I I knew that any given fight was only going to have like four enemies or something like that. So I didn't feel that obligated to play really hard. You don't want to die, so they still are conveying to you that you need to... uh Or they're still keeping you at that consistent level of play theoretically, but... Being aware of the light consequence of dying, I guess, I just don't get as engaged with it. Whereas in Renegade, where, like, 
if I lose my two lives or three lives and have to restart the whole game, I am much less likely to get uh, lazy. So that is something worth looking at. The game encourages you to act in certain ways by giving you a health bar, but I guess the underlying assumption is that you don't want to run out of health, and uh, an important part of that decision then is figuring out the right weight, the the right weight of the consequence to having zero health. Yeah, I think it's kind of cheating to just say like. Oh, well, the player will naturally not want to die. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there's a, an effect to where you put continue points and how you use lives or save points or whatever. You can't trust the player to not use the tools that you've given them, basically. You can't give them something and say, now, nah, well, you shouldn't have died anyway, though. It's a, it is the player's responsibility to press their advantage in any way that they can. Right. It's part of the game. Wario fan, how do you think Shinneketsu Koha would have been different if, when you died, you went back to the beginning of the stage, like, uh, after the last boss fight? Uh, jeez. That would have made it pain. I mean, you're saying you have to go back to the beginning and fight those knife guys again? That's, that's not, no, I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but there are definitely plenty of games where you die and you go back to the beginning of the stage, right? Oh, that's true. No, I've never played a game like that. <laughs> well. <laughs> Does that happen in Metroid? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Wario fan, what would you say is the difference between... Um, just pick a game where that does happen. Um, Mario. Okay, so... Why does it work for Mario and not for Shin Koha? Because Mario is a platformer, and I can just run and jump around everywhere, and the game doesn't force me to beat up every Goomba on the screen to go on. <laughs> it's definitely less confrontational. <laughs> but I think Mario also has warp zones. Well, yeah. I still try to kill every Goomba, either way. They deserve it! I mean, you don't know what they could be getting up to once Mario moves on. Um, <laughs> falling off another ledge? <laughs> well, if Mario's not going to kill me, I might as well go this way. Yeah, I guess it's the Red Koopas that are more dangerous. They know what... <laughs> they're the ones that were programmed with an idea of self-preservation. <laughs> I think they leave the game memory once they're off screen anyway. Yeah. Uh, game memory? Sorry. I was talking about a real world history experience <laughs> here. Sorry to break the immersion. Um, what were we talking sorry about? Sorry I took this way off topic. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like what you were referring to then, Wario fan, is that, hmm, how to put to words, like, any one fight in Shinneketsu Koha is as intense as a stage in Super Mario Brothers. Right. Well, are there more of those fights in Shinnikitsu Kaha than levels in Mario? The point more is that a stage in Shinnikitsu Kaha is balanced more like a world in Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
so that um, the intensity of a single encounter in Shinoketsu Koha would be like several jumps in Super Mario Brothers. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the entire, you know, a stage of Mario is a continuous sequence of play that, like, plays with a, or uses a single concept or, you know, plays it in a way that the player is continuously engaged and that's the equivalent of one fight or one screen in Shin Nikatsu. It's like one continuous stream of play. Mm-hmm. You can put down your controller after the fight's over. So I guess the trick to it then is figuring out when that continuous stream of play is over. When has the player seen the entirety of the concept? You don't want to stop too late. You don't want to stop too early. Yeah, that's the trick to putting continue points. I guess this is the old analogy where um, you know, when I sit down and read a book, I try to read one chapter in a sitting because that's going to have its own rising and falling action. Yeah, it's beginning, middle, end. Yeah. So the <laughs> to circle back around, the entire point of having a health system is to enforce the sense that a certain gameplay segment has a beginning, middle, end, and you want the player to experience that as a continuous sequence of actions. Yeah, that's what we just said. That's pretty neat. Mm. Ben Reese does a number of things, but I heard about him when I came across his blog. He knows his combat, and, as it turns out, he's got his fingers in game development, too. Up next, an interview with Mr. Reese, spelled R-U-I-Z, where he shares his piece on everything from the basic concept of health all the way to the nature of fighting mechanics. Seduzy. Also, before you listen, uh, the game is Aztez, not Aztec. Today we're talking with Ben Reese, a game developer, teacher, and combat consultant. His upcoming project is Aztec, a brawler with a touch of procedural generation, and you can find him at benreese.net. Uh, we'll refer- we will refer to a couple of concepts from his blog, most notably his division of beat-em-ups into different eras. Hello, Ben. Hi. Um, so I wanted to start off with a bit of an abstract question. Uh, so combat-oriented games often rely on three key, key incentives to encourage the player to act in certain ways. There's usually health, sometimes score, and sometimes time, although uh, mostly it's like a faster playthrough is considered a better one. And I was wondering, by your, by your reckoning, are there any incentives I'm missing there? No, but um, I also think that that... The primary incentive, and this is like the traditional ancient formula, this is the way it's always been, is primarily health, because the sort of meta incentive is like, just don't die, right? Like, that's the most fundamental incentive. And the other ones you listed um, are technically popular incentives, right? Like, they're not necessary, but they've always been there because people like them. Um, 
as far as what other popular incentives there are, I think that mostly covers it. You know, you either have these time pressures or you have, um, you know, like a score pressure, which is typically, you know, self-inflicted, so to speak. But, um, yeah, like uh, any other incentives um, aren't necessarily in their own category. They kind of depend on the game. Like in Aztez, you collect blood, so that's another incentive, but it's not necessarily a critical part of the experience. So to answer your question, no, I think you're mostly nailing it with with the the, the health and then the other popular ones. And I, so you actually kind of touched on this question as well. Uh, what the point is of having multiple incentives? It, it, you know, to me, it's like I think it just makes the the engagement more interesting. I mean, any beat 'em up is just like this series of encounters. And, uh, you know, what you do in between the fights is just sort of there for pacing or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's like uh, it's they're really just there to make things more interesting and a little bit more engaging. Like, um, unless you have just uh, unless mashing a button in your combat system is incredibly fun and infinitely interesting, which never happens. You stack these other things on top of it just to, like I said, make it something a little more uh, a little bit more long lasting and fun. For some people I talk to, though, say that sort of that approach to scoring and health kind of falls flat, and they see it as a uh, kind of a band-aid approach that they don't know how to make their combat it genuinely work, so they sort of just tack this scoring thing on top of it. Uh, what would your answer be to those folk? I don't necessarily think that's untrue, but I do think it depends on the fight experience itself. Like, you could take something like, you know, classic Devil May Cry or something like Bayonetta and uh, remove all the other incentives, and you would still have something that's very engaging, but a lot of that comes down to how interesting your enemies are. And that's ultimately where I think a lot of combat designers fall short is they don't have enemies that control you. They don't have enemies that put proper pressure on the player. And, uh, yeah, in, in that instance and in where your enemies aren't that interesting in themselves, then, yeah, these other incentives would be, in that case, Band-Aids. But since we brought up Bayonetta, it's like they also have this really intense scoring system. And so you could play the game just engaging the enemies, having a really good time, you know, enjoying the different combination of enemies. But once you get to a certain level and you stack or, or you tack on the, the scoring experience to that, it just becomes infinitely more interesting. So yes and no. Like, it just depends on how good the pure, unfiltered combat is by itself. It sounds like there are tiered incentives then where uh, health has to be... Uh, Health must be engaging in and of itself before you can even think about anything else. Absolutely. I think that's completely true, like 100% of the time. I mean, there's, I think it's possible to have a combat experience where, um, like, there are consequences for losing a fight that are outside of the fight itself, but I've yet to personally see that, and ultimately that would still come down to, well, I'm trying to stay alive or not. But yeah, to answer your question, yeah, it really is just ultimately the health thing. I also wonder, uh, this occurred to me while you were talking, uh, have you ever played Nights into Dreams? Uh, I, I am familiar with it. It was the old um, Saturn games, right, where you flew around and like collected things, right? Right. Yeah, I, I don't believe I ever actually played them, but I, I know what they are, yeah. Knights employs kind of a unique system where you don't have health. You can take infinite damage, but... Uh, you have a timer, and whenever you hit an enemy, you run out of time. Or, you like, it'll detect five seconds from the clock. Okay, sure. Um, so that's... 
kind of an odd game in that it's, it's built entirely on popular incentives of time and score. Sure, sure, yeah, totally. And, and you know, it's kind of interesting. Like, when it comes down to it, most games just, the, the ultimate failure state is just, well, you died, and now you have to either repeat the last few minutes of gameplay, or on the other side of things, you have these, like, terrible consequences on top of you, which is typically, ultimately, like, using up your time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because when you have these game experiences that don't punish you, for you know the the last series of decisions you've made, then it's it, it just doesn't end up being fun. Like that just happens to be the risk game designers have been employing forever because we either can't think of anything else or it's good enough. You know, if you don't have that incentive there, it, it tends to be kind of a slog. Yeah, yeah, or or a slog at best. Like I've played games where there isn't enough incentive, there isn't enough meaningful failure. Where it's just like. This is boring as shit. Like, it, I'm not slogging through it, but I'm still, like, bored to tears. And so, yeah, it's like, it's the same terrible thing, just different mutations of it. Okay. Actually, thinking about uh, having to repeat gameplay, um, I was also pondering, in first-stage brawlers, there are, there are often limited lives and limited continues. And we're in an era now that most games really don't employ limited lives and limited continues. You usually can pick up right from the chapter where you left off, like a right. Double Dragon Neon. Right. Um, and I was wondering, do you think those systems are largely antiquated and out of place nowadays? Or do you think they could be properly revived? Well, I, I think that, like, first of all, the reason it sort of shifted that way has everything to do with games like this moving from the arcade to the console, right? Because when you were still in an arcade cabinet, the whole idea was to pump quarters out of a player, and if your game wasn't really fun but also really hard, an arcade cabinet wouldn't work. And so the shift was, now that we're on consoles and quarters isn't an issue, this becomes more about um, being fun but wanting to push people through content versus punishing them so that they stick in more quarters. So that has everything to do with it. I mean, if anything, the old system, even though I find it more engaging as an arcade kid, if anything, that's antiquated since we don't rely on quarters anymore and credits in themselves aren't meaningful, you know? Okay. So it's, it's all about... I guess you could say an arcade does not want you to see content and a console wants you to see more content. Well, it needs you to. That's kind of the selling point, right? It's like if, if, if you have, you know, when a lot of gamers are kids, and this is where a lot of this comes from, it's like if you've got a kid who put a bunch of his money together to buy a game, he doesn't want to be, he or she, I'm sorry, doesn't want to be punished and not be able to see any of the game's content because he, you know, for whatever reason, can't commit to mastering everything. So it really is like the other end of the spectrum for the formula of how exactly we're going to get people through this. But yeah, it's really interesting, and it, it bums me out because we've got, this like plague of games now where it's just there isn't any meaningful challenge it really is just scooting you through all the cutscenes and making sure you meet all the characters and see all the scenery and so yeah it's interesting i was also wondering uh in your own game development projects how have you used like death and other incentives uh you know i've worked on a lot of games and they weren't necessarily uh, under my direction, and so they've kind of run the gamut from, like, the traditional system of this game is hard, and we're going to punish you, and you're going to die a bunch of times, to um, you don't really die, and this is almost more of a toy, right? It's like um, the the last major employer I had was Flashbang Studios here in Arizona, and we basically built a bunch of, like, physics toys, you know, and it's it, it's like the, the victory and success state, or victory and failure saints were, weren't very meaningful. They were just 
this is fun to do for a little while, and this is why people are, are bothering to spend their time with it. So, yeah, it's been all over the place. Um, but with Aztez, the thing that I think we're kind of doing a little bit differently is that, um, you know, we've got this combat gameplay that is tied to the strategy gameplay. And the strategy game is essentially just a board game where instead of rolling a dice to resolve conflict, you actually have, like, these real-time beat-em-up segments. And the thing that I want to play with is you engage an event, you know, quote-unquote event on the map, and whether you win or lose has different effects back on the board game, but you only get one shot at it. So what we're experimenting with is trying to incentivize people to be good at the game so that they can be successful at these events and express their own like um, victory intentions through the combat. So this could be a complete failure. We're pretty sure there's never been anything <laughs> like this before. It could end up being the worst thing ever, or it could be an infinitely more interesting ve- vehicle for combat than like have a fight, walk into the next room, push a block around, grab a ledge, have another fight. So, so we'll see. But yeah, we're me and the other guy, Matthew, we're just really, really big on meaningful victory and, and failure. So that's kind of what we're trying to do. Would it be fair to say that Aztez is, uh, I guess, balanced more to make the combat meaningful than the strategy, or are you trying to play them equally? Uh, the first one, for sure. Like, like I'm, I'm not super duper interested myself in creating board games and strategy games, even though I love them. Um, I, I'm more so just interested in I want something that is more fun as an entire experience because, you know, and, and you read my articles, you know how I feel about this, but games like God of War and even things like Bayonetta, which I love, I just find very tedious. Like, I hate their pacing of, like I just said, have a fight, do some rote things in a different room, walk into a different room and have a fight. Like, I'm really just trying to make the entire package more fun, but we're not necessarily trying to design an incredible board game. We're just trying to design something that makes the combat better. So, yeah, so like you said, it, it's just... It's fueling that with with more long time engagement. I see. It, the strategy is a more engaging approach than the inane puzzles. Exactly. Yeah. In, in my opinion. In my opinion. And I know some people aren't going to like that. I know plenty of people who really appreciate that, like that slowdown, that like dip in intensity, where it's like, okay, I'm like, you know, solving a puzzle and 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 just chilling out for a few moments, and I totally appreciate that. But I just want something more engaging and more interesting. Personally, it's uh, something I've grown to, I guess, accept over the years in the same way I right. accept that uh, I have to eat vegetables every day. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I'm sitting there going – and I wrote an article about this a long time ago that like really irritated people because of the like horrific language I was using. But it, I, I sort of compared it to like – pornography with story it's like you know we sort of accept these things like like when when someone turns on pornography they're there for a very specific reason they're trying to like watch people have sex but the vegetables is like the story in between these sex scenes and yeah it's just like it's this weird mess where you know some people are in your boat that you just described where it's like yeah i just kind of expect it to be there to the point that it's weird if it's not and so i'm sitting there going like okay let's replace the vegetables with like a candy bar or, or something just, even if it's simple, it's just more fun and more interesting. So we'll see. Like, we're still not sure if it's going to happen yet, but at least we're trying, you know? Hey, that's, uh, at the end of the day, that's all you can do. Yeah, exactly. I also wanted to discuss, uh, in specific, the mechanics of first stage beat-em-ups. Yeah. Um, they tend to be more rigid with few, if any, cancels, and you only usually only get a few combo strings per character. Right. Um, I was wondering, in your view, you write a lot of articles uh, analyzing like mash flow, 
and, and combo strings, etc. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of stuff that tends to go over my head. And I was wondering, it, would you say that first stage beat em ups, because they don't have that same combo depth, do you see this rigidity as a lack of depth? Um, yeah, technically, because I think that uh, the critical distinction between the first age and the second age is that the second age had mechanics that you didn't need, right? And so it essentially introduced, like, variety and options and tools you can use that you didn't have to, which just made it more interesting. But that was all about the depth. I think with these first age beat-em-ups there, you know, some of them were very good. They were very interesting, despite the fact that they had little depth. But again, that came down to the fact that their enemies were designed well and their encounters were designed well and their pacing was good. But but yeah, it, it is definitely a lack of depth, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I just think it comes down to how you've crafted your, your actual encounter experience. Um, but yeah, like I said, that's that's a huge difference between the first age and the second age. And, and the only reason I'm not creating something like that is because I just, in my own personal opinion, don't find that as fun or interesting. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. But yeah, they were much shallower, but the good ones were still really good for that reason. So you could say uh, second age brawlers tend to have more depth, while first age brawlers tend to be tighter? I think so, yeah. But I mean, it, it's okay. So there's there's good and bad examples from every age. But I think that that you know, like I said, the good first age, little depth, but really good pacing, really good enemy design. Um, the second age was the the good examples also had good pacing, good enemy design, but they also had options on top of it. They had this mechanical depth, which for me just made them more interesting. But it really was like it, it to me it was such a massive distinction because and you can kind of just tell from a distance by looking at them when you watch ten people playing Streets of Rage, a first bait first age beat em up very very well you're kind of looking at the same play style there's like this one effective way to the top and that made sense and it was good and it was fun but if you're watching 10 different people play aliens versus predator very well you're looking at 10 completely different play styles and that's where it got interesting for me okay yeah i'm actually curious uh when you say you watch 10 different people play well is this like you're watching speed runs or is this your friends And not necessarily like referring to any specific piece of data, just, you know, because I grew up in the arcade. It's like I was there. I watched a hundred different people play thousands and thousands of different games as long as I was in the arcade for most of my childhood. And these are just sort of like observations that I made, you know, all the times I was sitting in line waiting to play Alien versus Predator, for example, it was like you would see... You know, you would see people that were playing it for the first time, and they obviously that wasn't impressive to look at. But the competent people, the the, the experienced players, they just yeah, it was like these grossly varied play styles, and it was really cool to me. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess that's kind of a cultural gap because, uh, like for instance, reviewing your timeline of the history of beat 'em ups, uh, I noticed you had a couple of the Dungeons and Dragons Capcom brawlers there, and I didn't even know those existed until the digital collection came out i think a year ago ah, sure sure yeah yeah those were um those were some of the first i think the first D game was the first beat em up on the cps2 hardware which they created for alpha 2 so it was like they had this sudden jump in technological power and the, the ability to support more you know sprites and backgrounds and they're like well we might as well you know make more characters oh we have more characters but they're all the same that sucks let's make them all different and then that sort of like bred this interesting depth that ended up happening I see. Yeah, it, it, it's easy to find brawlers with a lot of different characters, and the differences are far too subtle to notice. Yeah, it, it, oftentimes they are, and that's what's so weird about it. It's like you can't um, 
you, you can't often dig into what's cool about games like this until you've actually dug in and like explored a lot of the mechanics for yourself. And one of the huge problems with beat-em-ups throughout time is that they're, they're never very good at incentivizing the player to actually explore it. Because like the baseline requirement to we want people to play this game is to just look cool and have, you know, have a cool soundtrack and like have neat characters. But there's no, um, there's no like built-in incentive for people to be like, no, no, we want you to explore this. Like, explore this insane array of tools we've given you versus, no, just get through the game. You bought it, cool, get through the game so we can, you know, you don't tell your friends it sucks, we're going to give you a lot of <laughs> sensational shit to look at, but yeah, they've they've never ever incentivized people to be awesome, which is such a weird bummer. I guess that makes it uh, all the more magical when there is one that, that does. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're trying, we'll see what happens, but I, I we're, we're experimenting with all kinds of uh, instructional approaches and, and strange, like, manipulative techniques to get people to, um, you know, do things like, for starters, push all the buttons and see what's there and then start experimenting with this and then almost hint at the player that there's bigger and better things you can do and then see how they respond. So we'll see. Fingers crossed that we end up with something that makes people want to be awesome at it. When you say manipulative approaches, uh, do any of these involve the enemy AI somehow coercing the player into taking up one tactic or another? Yeah, definitely. Like, we have a couple uh, – well, I'll talk about one specific enemy now. We have an enemy that um, – it comes out, and it will occasionally enter the stance where it's blocking. And it can still move around. It can still attack. But its shield is up. And it's very clear that it's blocking because every time you try and attack it, nothing happens. I mean, there's visual feedback. You know that it blocked your attack, but you can just womp on it infinitely. And we intentionally didn't put in, like, a shield-breaking point. It's just going to block you forever until it drops a stance. And eventually, people figure out, oh, if I grab it, it breaks the block, and then I can, you know, deliver grab attacks onto it. So there's just things like that that we're trying to implement that will make people actually, you know, like I said, explore all their tools. Okay. And then, uh, you know, later in the game, you might encounter an enemy that only blocks a third of the time, and you know during that third I can grab or something like that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, once you've taught, it's like there's this high or, or, or a high or low level. I don't, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of what I should be saying, but there's like <laughs> the easiest version of the mechanic. There we go. Um, the easiest version of the technique. As long as you can get people through that, then it's pretty simple to just walk them through more and more complex things. And so, yeah, it would make a lot of sense to have enemies down the road that, that provide mutations of that things that you already taught them. And that's, that's classic game design, you know, but it, it's just the challenge really is like, getting people to figure it out the first time. Okay. Yeah. I was also thinking, uh, reading your articles, it's often, it's easy to see someone write about uh, third age beat-em-ups. And, you know, they gush about, you know, how many combos they can perform in Bayonetta and think of beat-em-ups uh, as only having depth insofar as you can hit the enemies so many times before breaking. Sure. Um, and I was wondering, do you think that brawlers of any age find depth from sources other than uh, just keeping a combo going? Um, that's a good question. That is a very good question. Um, off the top of my head, I cannot think of any that do that, but I'm actually going to uh, kick open my timeline real quick here just to kind of give it a, a cursory glance. <clears throat> but yeah, I can't think of any off the top of my head that are really just about delivering that difficult, 
combat experience. Yeah, n no, not really. I mean, there's plenty of games that have put different types of games in between their fights, you know, like platforming elements and things like that. And that's technically adding depth to the gameplay experience, but not to the combat experience, so I don't really think that counts. But um, there's got to be some Third Age stuff that... It that did occur that. to me yeah, that um, you, discuss, you sometimes discuss the defensive games, or... Yeah, the defensive approach to a game. Yeah. And I thought maybe that would be some alternative source of depth. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, because there's there's so many mutations on defense that so many different designers have implemented, but um, I don't know if this goes outside the scope of your question or not, but it is technically just making um, the combat a little bit more interesting. Well, yeah, I guess so. It. it uh, so my thing is, is that like I tend to not think like that because I prefer it when defense is very, very pure and elegant and simple. And so um, I think other combat experiences that I can think of off the top of my head that have been very engaging, they sort of follow the same rule. It's like it's like with Devil May Cry, which to me is a phenomenal combat experience despite it being very, very difficult. It's only defense mechanicals like rolling out of the way, and it was very difficult to do. But that was the extent of it, and you could, you know, you could jump, even though a lot of the times that wasn't safe. But, but yeah, it, it's, it's. I, I think it should be pure. I think it's potentially that could add depth to a combat experience. But then you're, you're sort of experimenting with something different at that point. Once you try and make defense um, its own semi-complex game, and I'm not against that at all. I'd like to see it. I just feel like in something like God of War, which gives you two or three different defense mechanics, none of which you need. Um, outside of, like, its primary dodge thing. It just sort of gets muddy and weird, and I don't know. My, this might be a philosophical thing on, <laughs> on, on my part at this point, but, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see that. I'd be curious about that. So, in your experience, it's often redundant? Yeah, very often, very okay. often. Um, the one thing I can think of off the top of my head to answer your question on, on an, another way to add depth to the game is I think Lords of Shadow did a really, really interesting thing where... Um, they incentivize you to employ variety, and Devil May Cry did the same thing, but it did it in a really um, uh, it, it, a very unclear way. Like, you have this style meter, and it sort of goes up as you do different things, but then it really, like, decelerates, and most people don't ever experience, like, you know, it goes D, C, B, A, S, double S, triple S. Like, most people don't get past B because there's so many, um, like, unclear objectives in that, that system of variety. But Lords of Shadow is actually pretty straightforward and pretty enjoyable. And when you actually, like, filled up this meter of variety, which basically was an indication that, yeah, you've employed a lot of different attacks instead of mashing one button, like, it started to reward you with magic, which then gave you access to, like, these additional mechanics. And Lords of Shadow, like, improved on that by introducing enemies that required you to use these um, these magical mechanics, which was interesting. So, but but again, this is all really just like new ways to make people attack enemies. <laughs> so it's uh, unless unless a person is very very passionate about an interesting combat experience, it isn't going to matter to anyone else. I see. So the, in other words, the baseline player of Lords of Shadow might never even tap into that kind of system. Yeah, I, I don't think they do. I've watched friends play it, and you know the friends of mine that, that aren't particularly passionate about combat, they just kind of mash, and they're able to get through it most of the time, which is fine. I think a game should actually... Um, a game should be prepared for that type of player, but yeah, for the most part, I don't think people see this. Okay. I was also wondering, 
we've been talking about uh, first stage, second age, third age brawlers. Um, but first age brawlers like Streets of Rage and third age like Devil May Cry. Yeah. They're pretty distinct games. Are those are the skills necessary in one necessarily uh, translatable to the other? So, like, if you get good at Streets of Rage 3 or 2 or 1, would that make you better at Devil May Cry? Is that what you're yeah. asking? Or vice I, versa. Yeah, I think so. Because, like, like ultimately, the, the primary skill in any combat experience is inflicting aggression while uh, monitoring the fight to watch out for your own back. You know what I mean? It's like you, you have to develop the skill of, like, okay, how am I going to deliver the most effective punishment while simultaneously keeping myself safe? And I think any beat-em-up from any age is going to help you get good at that uh, or get good at any other beat-em-up from any other age because it's all ultimately the same skill that it that is required. Okay. Yeah. Monitoring spaces and learning how to deal damage while keeping yourself in a safe space. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I also just wanted to touch on brawler bosses. Um, yeah. In my experience, there tend to be, like mostly be two varieties. Uh, there's the big guy who's really well scripted, and he has two attacks, and you can see them coming from a mile away. Right. And then there's the guy that's your size, and he has like a million different attacks, and I don't know which one he's going to do next. Right. Um, is that pretty much it from your experience? Um, flipping through the mental Rolo decks here. Um. I feel like there have been some, um, yeah, I mean, it, it I, I can think of some, let me go ahead and just get the thought out, I can think of some bosses that sort of fall in between those two things, where it's like, you know, like you said, on one end you've got the boss who has a, a variety of, of um, very hard to predict attacks versus the boss that is very scripted. I feel like I've seen plenty of interesting bosses, and, and off the top of my head I'm thinking of like some Devil May Cry bosses. They're sort of a combination of the two. Like, you know, they've got these states that they're in where you don't know what's going to come out next, and that's interesting because you don't know what's going to come out next. But then they sort of switch back and forth between, okay, now I'm in this really high-powered state, and you know exactly what I'm going to do, but if I'm designed right, if you... Uh, misstep, then you're going to get punished tremendously. So I feel like those are, are typically kind of fun because it's, I guess it's just kind of a pacing thing. It's like, okay, I just spent like two or three minutes in this really intense state where I didn't know what was happening. Oh shit, now it's going down and like I, I know what's going to happen, but like I'm still anxious about it. So yeah, I feel like you can bounce back and forth between the two to sort of get outside that mold. But outside of that, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Okay. Yeah. I can't say uh, I've seen that myself, but that does seem... Like, it'd be a more gratifying approach to boss fights. Right, right. And, uh, moving on, uh, we have been playing Shin Niketsu Koha. Uh, yes. A Super Nintendo Kunio Kun game, never came over to the States. Um, it bears the trappings of a belt scroller, since it has the overhead perspective, and you move forward only after you've beaten up everyone on the screen. But you never face more than two guys at once past the introductory sequence. And each enemy pretty much has the same moveset that you do, which is pretty meaty. They have their own combos, they they can block, they have their own special attacks. Um, so I was, it's been kind of bugging me because that's on the, on the border there between Brawler and Fighter, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts based on that description. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, A, I had never heard of that until you brought it up, so I'm glad you did because I went and watched it on YouTube. I watched like a Let's Play for, for 10 or 15 minutes. And yeah, to me, it, it felt like 
I feel like if I was playing that, it would emotionally be more like a fighting game because instead of like instead of the power fantasy of oh I'm squashing like dozens of guys at the same time that are all very weak, you've got that other end of the spectrum where it's like I'm up against something as powerful as myself. And uh, yeah, it was interesting. It's like it it looked and felt like a beat 'em up mechanically. But yeah, like I said, I, I felt like emotionally it was more like a fighting game. And so the interesting exception is that you said sometimes you'll fight two guys at once, and that is super fascinating. But until I've gotten my hands on it, I can't comment too much more on it. But yeah, it, it mostly just seems like a fighting game, except they're, they're sort of tricking you into thinking it's not, you know, which, which I don't have a problem with. I think that's cool. But, but yeah, it, it looked really strange, especially since the previous Kunio games are all very very obviously beat them up so it's like me versus an army and I'm squashing everyone so yeah I found that really interesting actually okay cool how, how much time have you put into it just out of curiosity like hours or weeks or you've only tried it or uh, myself personally I've put maybe five hours into it and I've gotten two playthroughs done it's okay a, it's a pretty brief game sure sure so how do you feel about it just out of curiosity like does it feel more like a beat em up or more like a fighter it's I guess uh, hmm. that's a difficult question to answer because uh, my I really like beat 'em ups because right. uh, the mechanical simplicity makes it a lot more approachable. Uh, I don't know half of what's going on in Street Fighter Two. Sure, sure. But at the same time, beat 'em ups can sometimes feel uh, a little. Well, I guess you said it earlier; they can feel shallow. Sure. There's not much going on. Uh, right. And Shinneketsu Koha has offers a somewhat deeper experience uh even with the mechanical simplicity of a brawler so it's sort of like you know, having your cake and eating it too yeah 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 that's really interesting yeah i, I really want to try it now because you even kind of sounded like hmm i'm on the fence on that myself so <laughs> yeah like i'm i'm really curious about that as an experience i was also wondering uh on your timeline it seemed like teenage mutant ninja turtles was kind of suspiciously absent. Right, yeah. I, I get this sometimes where it's like, hey, what about this seminal beat-em-up? And, and it was honestly one of those things where it's like, um, there's a lot of games that aren't on here, not for any reason, besides I was trying to like get a good representation of history from start to finish, and some things just got left out on accident. I think uh, Ninja Turtles 2 was like super incredibly seminal and fun and amazing, and we all have super good memories of it. I feel the same way about, you know, The Simpsons and stuff like that. They're only not in there on accident. Like, it's by no means a comprehensive history, but I was I was hoping more to communicate the idea I by see. having, you know, like major... But yeah, I, I definitely left some out on accident. You're just one guy, so you can only put in so many games. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, if, if there was a way to make this open and let other people add to it, I would totally do that, but I haven't figured out a way with this tech uh, on TikiToki.com to actually do that, so I still might figure it out at some point and, and open it up, because it'd be so awesome to see everything in one place. Uh, that might be a little scary. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I can only imagine the discussions on debates on whether a game should be... Uh, First or second age. <laughs> yeah, like, once you get to that, like, you know, 1993, 1994 border, like, shit would start to get angry. And I would love it. I would eat it all up. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a fan not just of uh, fisticuffs, but of other varieties of fighting. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I generally speaking find conflict fascinating and like, you know, I'm, I'm a boxer actually and like, you know, I grew up just in a neighborhood where, where it wasn't uncommon to see fights and I just, it's, it's fascinating to me. Like it's a really interesting dance and I think looking past, um, the, the negative parts of it, the, the injury, the violence, the, the, you know, it's, it's just a fascinating dance and so it kind of, those things translate into everything I end up creating just because I, you know, like I said, infinitely fascinated with it. Yeah. Can't blame you there. Yeah. All right. And just to close out, uh, one final question. Yeah. When it comes to the theory behind beat-em-ups, which is typically more important to you? The intent of the developer? The experience of the player? Or the essence of the game itself? <sighs> when you say essence of the game itself, what do you mean? Um, there's this idea that I have a cartridge in my hand and it's this objective sequence of zeros and ones. And when right. I put it in my console, it's always going to do the same program. Okay. Hmm. Ultimately, I think player experience is paramount for sure. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I'm one of those people who wants to sell games. Like, and I'm not being snarky or patronizing to, to the more artistic style developers, but like, I enjoy making things that people want to play, they want to purchase, they want to put time into. And so I always hit the vector of what is their experience going to be like? And, you know, obviously I have this like really complex intent because I care so much about these types of games, but ultimately what I'm trying to do is make sure that the player experience is the best it could possibly be. So that's where I'm coming from for sure, 100% of the time. Okay. So yeah. you're in the same, like, uh, I guess you're thinking if I had to buy this game, this is what I would want. I would want a good game. Do you, when you say I, do you mean you or like I as in myself, like I'm making the game I want to play? Uh, the latter. So no, actually. Well, yes and no, because I am making a game like with Aztez right now. Like I'm making a game that, that I do enjoy playing and that when it's a complete um, product, I will enjoy it. But if I made the game that I – like the Ben Reese dream product that like is perfectly designed to suit his brain – I'm pretty sure no one else would like it. Like, th there would be a small, small handful of people that would enjoy it. People that are very, very similar to me and, and, and temperate and, and, you know, the kind of things that they like. And I can't think like that because I'm trying to make this game to bootstrap further games. If 10 years from now I have a ton of money because I've made all these amazingly successful games and then I can afford to make whatever I want, that's when the game that I want to play will officially get made and no one will buy it. <laughs> so um, I'm trying to be a smart businessman here and not do that now, even though I technically could. Because, yeah, like I said, I want to bootstrap the continued production of games. Okay. Yeah. There actually uh, was a neat post from your blog about uh, a certain cancel for an attack animation. You had to choose between the accessible one and the more technical one, and yep. you ended up on the more accessible one. Yep, yep. That was one of, like, the most interesting moments because it was just a huge crossroads. It's like, oh, yeah, I need to make sure this game is fun to button mash, and if I continue to make decisions like this, I'm going to fail there, and then this game is not going to do that well because that's just the bottom line about games like this. But, yeah, it was really interesting. <laughs> and since then, there have been a very... um a very distinct handful of experiences where I had to make that decision again, and most of the time, I end up leaning towards the accessibility. At this point, 
we have created something that is very, very fun to button mash, and people who have never played beat-em-ups are able to enjoy it more often than not. And so it's sort of shifted the pendulum a little bit in the sense that, like, okay, now there's this really hardcore thing you have to make a decision about, and I'm able to go, okay, let's do that because we've already made it fun for people who button mash. So it was really just making those decisions early on to get to that point, and then once you're there, it's golden, you know, provided you don't screw it up. Like, well, our, <laughs> our, our game was fun to button mash for six months, but then I introduced this insane button mashing penalty, and so, yeah, that's, that's ultimately what it's coming down to there. So you're still feeling at that space where uh, you have the proper health incentives, but you have uh, enough there to engage the... Uh, more skilled player as well. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's that's that's sort of what we're building on now. Like the button mashers are totally taken care of. Like, did you see my article about scrappers, warriors, and masters? Yeah, I think oh. I, I think most of us are scrappers. Right. Yeah, and that's exactly the thing. Like, that's I, I eventually realized that when I started taking hard data on this, and it's like most people are scrappers. Take care of them first, and so. The scrappers are taken care of. Like we've now been to a PAX, we've been to, to two or three different Evos, we've been to, we've had the game on tour for the last couple of years, and I've been watching this happen. But the scrappers are good. The warriors are just about taken care of. And then we'll, uh, the the last thing that I will do, just for my own sake, is make sure the masters are taken care of by just sticking in the insanity that you can access at the high level. But that doesn't punish the scrappers. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, I would implore anyone making a, a beat 'em up or a combat experience to think in that way, like take care of the scrappers, then the warriors, then the masters, that's a pyramid, don't argue. Like <laughs> don't push against that and like make the insane Devil May Cry 3 style game you want to make. Do something successful and then build the, the depth behind the scrapper wall. So not everybody goes to De- Dante must die. Yeah, oh yeah, right? Yeah. And and I, I totally understand that. I love playing those games on those insane difficulty levels, but like I also had to earn that after a lifetime of playing beat 'em ups and sort of like getting a vocabulary for them and and that's we are the tiny tiny minority. So yeah, fuck that. I know better. <laughs> I know better, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll see. Yeah, right. All right. Well, thanks. This has been enlightening. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. These are so much more fun questions than the questions I usually get, which is like, what consoles are you coming out on? So <laughs> I really appreciate it. One last thing, actually. I was wondering yeah. if you could say, uh, chew the floor, kiddo. Say what? It's a line from the game. Chew the floor, kiddo? Oh, C-H-E-U-E-W. C-H-U-E-W? <laughs> I will type it. Okay. Uh, is this like a something a bad guy yells at you? Yeah, he says it right before a fight in a disco club. Oh, chew the floor, kiddo. Yeah. <laughs> that is so Cunio too, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think you must have noticed from the footage that there is a lot of cursing in that game. Yeah, oh yeah, it's awesome. I love it. Like those those early games were so like trying to capture those 80s movie street fights that they're awesome. And they did it. They totally nailed it. And it's so hilarious. <laughs> to the floor, kiddo. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> Alright, well, uh, thanks for the interview. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, takes me right back to the Disco Almanac. Anyway, after our health discussion, we turn to points. If you run out of health, you gotta start over, but typically, you really don't need points. 
I have him at all, then? Shinniketsu Koha didn't. Hmm. Give it a listen. Health is like a hard limit that requires you to go back and repeat sections if you run out. But scoring, on the other hand, is like this layer of gameplay on top of health, where uh, the game just sort of like lets you know how proficient you are at a certain system. And so I was wondering, Shouty, how do you know when it's appropriate to give feedback by health and when it's appropriate to give feedback by scoring? Hmm. I'm going to answer this vaguely and say that, I mean, if it's not of the developer's intent, then you lose health. But if you're going on beyond the expectations of the developer, even though they're scoring it, you, you get score instead of losing health. Or they're going to expect you to sort of, like, do well. If they expect you to do well at the game, like, above and beyond, they'll score it appropriately. So you're saying they'd, like, have an idea of an average player in their head, basically. Mm-hmm. And anyone that does below the average gets damage, and anyone that does above the average gets points. Yes. And if we link it into the previous conversation, average is the line at which you experience the proper sequence of beginning, middle, end. Yeah. Average is the person that dies at every checkpoint. I guess, yeah. That makes me feel better about how I perform in Shinniketsu Goha. Sanrio, I was wondering, why do you think Shinniketsu Koha doesn't have scoring? Because they didn't see a point in adding it? <laughs> Is that to say that, like, uh, they didn't think, uh, the combat lent itself to performance above just getting by? Yeah, I guess. Um, I don't think it was about the combat itself. I think that this, I mean, I read somewhere that this is a more story-oriented, um, one of the, the Kunio-kun games. So it's taken more like, it has more of sensibilities of something like a, maybe a visual novel. So score is kind of irrelevant there. They want you to see the story. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually thinking about it in comparison to Asura's Wrath, which I completed last weekend or so, uh, which was not a totally different game structurally, um, in that it had its beat-em-up segments and its, uh, you know, story development segments, and it sort of paced them in a similar way where there's basically just one fight for each story event. Uh, but Asura's Wrath does have scoring. And what I was talking to Golem about is that in a story-based game, I don't, uh, like, it just seems ridiculous to have scoring that way because seems counterintuitive to what the developer wanted the player to enjoy in the game. Like, to go back and get a better score in a stage of Asura's Wrath, you have to sit through, like, ten minutes of cutscenes. Mm -hmm. Every time you want to try to get a better score. It really is, like, mind-bending 
what they were expecting the player to get out of that. Uh, or so for a game like Shinoketsu, I think if they were, or I think not having score is an easy way of, or is in alignment with that, uh, saying to the player, you know, you got through the story and that was what you were supposed to get out of the game. The flip side of that then is that, uh, how the game provides feedback, which seems like it only uses health and by way of health time. Um, the way it provides feedback then will have to evoke the sense of the story, right? Yeah, you would want it to be like, oh no, Misaka died. Oh, this is so sad. She got beaten to death by a... A gunshot. <laughs> <laughs> and appropriately, because you... Because you've gone through this tragedy, you have half as much health. But I also think it goes, it definitely goes deeper than that, because, uh, like, early on in the game, you're just sort of wandering around, you don't have any specific idea of who set you up, and you're uh, tackling a bunch of nameless thugs. And then in the middle of the game, when you find Shinji, Shinji is like the, your one lead into the, uh, the big setup behind everything. So they focus on him, you get to fight him twice, and they give you some time to center on him. And then past that point, the game centers more on individual really tough encounters, because in the progression of the story, you're finally learning, uh, specific faces that are part of the scheme against you. So it makes more sense that you would be fighting specific people. Yeah, you do get the sense that you're beating up an actual real live person, and I enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the disco fight in particular for that reason. I think the Chew the Floor guy does a really good job of giving you the sense that he's this big old gangster. Suppose Hitman. Hitman, whatever, you know. I think he was hired. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh. I didn't like how friggin' generous his hitbox on his uppercut was, though. I don't remember how I took him out. He's like the boss that left the least impression in my brain. All I remember about him is that you couldn't use the down attack on him. I... He was too big or something. <laughs> um, that was the fight where I found it was really easy to abuse the guard jump. Hmm. I didn't start using that till later, actually. So, who in particular? The guard jump? Yeah. Uh, I used that against Misuzu 1, and I think I used it against the knife guy sometimes, even though it didn't really work. It is a super fast move, so if you are trying to circle around Misuzu, you definitely want to do something that's going to get in there as ASAP. Yeah. So when we were talking about games we had played, I mentioned that I had tried a little Renegade, and then it kind of blew up into a revisitation of the discussion from last time. That is to say, in the time since the last podcast, did any of us grow in terms of how we played Shin Niketsu Koha? I had been 
getting my butt kicked in Renegade. Uh, I currently have not seen past... Well, okay, I got to the second screen, but I have not cleared the first stage. <laughs> Wait, of um, the NES game? Yeah. God, you suck. It is tough. <laughs> it is not that hard. I think the only way to kill people efficiently, like, as in kill people without getting killed yourself, is to one-hit kill them on the, uh, like, get them to fall off the platform, right? No, don't do that. That's I never do that. That's stupid. <laughs> well, if you run up and punch them, they do just as much damage to you as you do to them, right? But remember, you get your health back at the end of the stage, so it doesn't matter if you take damage. There are so many guys, though. You can't get to that point without dying. Really? Yeah, I guess you just need to work on using the uh, throw and the back kick to control... Like, do enemies ever hit you from behind? Do you have a problem with that? I think my biggest problem is dealing with the guys who have staffs. Oh, yeah, you uh, always jump kick them. Okay, maybe I'll work... Yeah, I wasn't sure how to work in jump kicks or when to think about doing it, so that might be an angle I have to look at. You always jump kick those guys, yeah. All right, glad to get some tips. Yeah, well, we had some renegade cameos in uh, Shinneketsu. That was... Sabu is the boss's name. And the, the and giant... Misuzu. Yeah, Misuzu. The giant, the giant Skibon. I really liked her. She was really funny. She's the best character in the game. She is the best character in the game. Uh, I'm going to vote to disagree there. <laughs> you didn't laugh when she was like, Oh, thanks, guys. No. No. <laughs> you were just trying to get to the text. Yeah, I actually was at that point, because I beat the game last night, and... Uh, oh, nice. I was working from the second motorcycle battle to the end of the game, and it got to a point where it's like, oh my god, this game really is just all bosses. And so I, it was starting to get frustrating, playing it in one sitting. What was your tactic for Misuzu? Oh, wow, we're getting into stuff already. Okay. <laughs> Let me get out my notes. Uh, uh, I figured out a strategy for... Her second battle was absolutely the, the hardest part of the game for me. She killed me about a million times when you have to fight her with just Ricky, Ricky and Kunio. Yeah. Um, she has less health, though. Does she? Okay. Well, what I did was I found that if you keep your distance from her and sort of uh, kite her around the room, she'll use her dash attack, and you can get her, if you dodge out of the way of the dash attack, you can get behind her and land a combo. So, so she will run past you? Or the cooldown yeah. has enough? Okay. If you move out of the way, she'll run past you a little bit. And she doesn't always go past you. Uh, it's not like perfect pattern or anything. Uh, but she does sometimes and leaves herself open from behind. Uh, and that was the strategy that, after about 20 deaths, finally led me to victory. There are a lot of enemies where I feel like the safest strategy is to trick them to running. Yeah, that usually leaves them open for you to do like a back attack counter. Beat them to the punch. I figured you probably could have done that on the uh, big black guy, whatever his name was, uh, but I didn't ever need to. Like, Misuzu 2 was the only time the game got hard enough 
that I actually really had to formulate a clear formal strategy. I think I shared this last time, but my main strategy for Misuzu is always uh, she is like 1.5 times Kunio's width, so it is really easy to walk into her from the Z-axis. That's what I was... I tried to do that a little bit, but I actually did not... Like, I found that that was a kind of risky strategy. I got hit sometimes when I did that. Oh. I just never, uh, like, was never able to reliably get her in a repeatable situation where I could approach her from the side. Like, I would do it when I got a chance to, but it wasn't something that uh, was always available, basically. Or that was... It wasn't reliable. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sanrio, I was wondering, since last time, um, yeah. you've been playing Shinoketsu Koha. Have any of your any of your strategies changed or evolved since last time? Yeah, I've gotten better at beating the enemies when they're down. So you're able to optimize how much you kick them on the ground? Yep. It let me hurt the enemies for a while when they can hurt me. Yeah, it is important yep. to learn that to uh, press your advantage. Shouty, did your strategies change at all since last time? I don't know. I think right now I've just been abusing the guard moves and getting by on that. I never really played with combos or that's, done anything cerebral like that. That's something I've been playing with, too. Um, I found that, like... So, <clears throat> definitely, Ricky's guard kick is still the most powerful move in the game. Um, the flying jump kick helps out sometimes. Uh, it depends. Like uh, oh, the speaking knife of guys, that, speaking of the flying jump kick, yes, realizing that every character can do a wall jump, I tried to do that for like style points because <laughs> it looks I didn't really cool. You could do that. It's really cool that you can do a wall jump and then go into a flying kick. Can you do it on any screen edge or just when you see the wall? I think when you see the wall. Because I have not seen a wall. In well, try the warehouse. Yeah, I think you mentioned it right after I cleared the warehouse, and now I'm in the mansion, and I still haven't seen a wall. There's yeah. one in the fight with Misuzu, too. And she runs right into it. Oh, so I'm right before a wall. If I just play a little further, I will be able to try it. Okay. Is the wall jump useful at all? I think it's a way to get over your, to clear over your opponent if you're in a tight spot. Okay, so it's maybe not a great way to approach enemies, but it's a good way to clear a lot of space. Uh-huh. Okay. It's one of those techniques, though, that's so rarely available that it's difficult to strategize around. Like, it just doesn't enter into my input lexicon, basically. So what about the hooks and the hanging lights? Do you use those? I try to use those. Th- those, though, you have a... Those are like a clear visual cue that you can initiate a new type of attack, whereas, like, a wall jump is an availability of a technique, like a dodge technique, that you don't normally uh, use. So, like... I feel like with the hooks, I can set myself up in a situation so that I use the hooks. Whereas with a wall jump, 
I can't, or I mean, I could, but I don't really want to set myself up in a situation where I use the wall jump. It's there just in case. So it's like something that I passively remember is there. The wall jump is there, like, if you need to get out of a bad situation, and you're not going to set yourself up into a bad situation. Right. I see. But the hooks were, uh... Yeah, I tried to use them when they were there just for the hell of it, but they also were... I found that I got hit just as often as I landed hits when I was on them. Well, the thing about the hooks is that if, uh, kicking from them does, does a lot of damage. Yeah, it like, is. It kills enemies in four hits, pretty much. Yeah, three, uh, two, yeah. three or four hits. In the school, it's kind of hard to use, but in the warehouse, definitely. Good times. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think. Yeah, the enemies in the warehouse are... I guess those karate enemies were, in my opinion, the hardest enemies in the game, and so... Karate enemies? You know, the guys that you fight in the warehouse, they have, oh. like, the thing around their head, the headband, oh, the, and the delinquents. That's is that, what that is yeah. one of the hardest stretches, because you need to go three screens, I think, without uh, continuing. Um, right. Yeah, that is one of the bigger stretches of the game. I think uh, the rest of the game will always set you on the screen that you died on. Pretty much, yeah. continues. And those guys use uh, pretty much the full spectrum of techniques in the game. I feel like they flesh it out the best, whereas enemies that are introduced after them, like the knife guys, for instance, tend to be based more around a gimmick or a um, something that fixes your strategy more. So the hardest enemies are, are pretty much yourself, yeah, exactly. That's what makes the Ken fight so interesting, that he is a very dynamic uh, skill set and a very dynamic AI. It very much feels like a fluid dance where you have to peel each other out. Wario fan, I was wondering if your strategies have changed at all since last time. Uh, yeah. Um... Last time at the podcast, somebody alerted me to uh, super moves. Yes. So guess what I spam after uh... <laughs> jump kicks. Yes, exactly. Oh. And then you know, I I found out that the super moves are different if you're doing punch and kick, and if you're one of the characters. It was good. I like that. There's a lot of variability there. Uh, what super moves did you find the most useful? Um. Uh, the 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 the, uh, the multi punch or kick one where you're just like, like you're just standing in one spot and you're doing the multiple punches and kicks is that the same? Oh, thing? so Ricky's guard kick. And yeah. Kyoko. Yeah, yeah, Kyoko has. No, 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 wait. Yeah, that's wait. yeah. It's okay, good, yeah. okay. It's, are you? Sh- are you? Sh- yes. Are you sure, it's not okay. Misaka's guard kick is the hurricane. Oh, you're right. Okay. Because I always think of like you know Kyoko and Ricky are. Boyfriend and girlfriend, so they probably shared that technique with each other. You know, the only thing that Misako <laughs> deviates from is having the, the same back attack as Ricky. Right, Misako has Ricky's back attack, and Kyoko has, Kyoko has Kunio's. Kunio's. Yeah. Yeah. I have been playing with spamming them myself, and 
I find that a lot of times the guard jump is very useful. It's an easy way to keep pressure on enemies really consistently if you just need them in the groin all of the time, forever. You can also get in a lot of kicks while they're in the ground that way. The only problem is when you get super defensive enemies like the knife guys, there's no great way to intercept them unless you're, uh, they're pretty susceptible to, like, regular kicks. I guess a little off topic, another interesting feature of the knife guys is that if you guard, that signals them to attack, like, almost immediately. Oh man. It's mm. not, like, if you, like, if you stand around and wait for them, they will get around to attacking you, but if you stand in front of them and guard, their knife is out like that. It's weird how, um, well, I, I'm gonna spoil the final boss now. No, you can go ahead. No, please okay. don't. It's weird how, um, your, your guard is completely disarmed by, um, the knife, but you can block the final boss's gunshots. Don't you just duck under them? No, you can, if you, like, I was, I was mashing the, the block button, right, as he was pulling out the gun, and I was, like, in mid-frame, about to go into a block, but I still managed to, like, block it out, and I was pushed back. Huh. How much damage did you take? I never no, I didn't take any that. damage. I completely absorbed all the damage. Doesn't Stallone do that in Rambo 2? Like, catch a bullet? Yeah. Uh, what does well, he do? Like, oh, yeah, like, he's... He's face to face with a guy with a machine gun and he lets the other guy shoot first. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how tough Rambo is. <laughs> so, uh, Shouty found the Rambo exploit dirt for the sacrifice. The <laughs> Rambo exploit. <laughs> the, the Rambo exception can block gun, gunshots but you can't block knives. I did find that really neat, that um, that final sequence there, where Misuzu is a, like, really grindy, heavy HP fight that has a, a few different uh, approaches that you just need to consistently employ in a loop. And then Ken is a very dynamic, uh, sort of equal footing fight. Mm-hmm. And then Sabu has, like, Sabu is an all-or-nothing fight where it's over really quickly, just, uh, you know, whether it's you or him, both of you fall down pretty quickly in that. It makes for a good falling action after the climax. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think it's odd that I found that I had almost the opposite experience as you with Ken and Misuzu, where Misuzu was the one where I had to go through a lot of different strategies, and I felt like I was being really aggressively pushed. Whereas with Ken... I was really easily able to find, like, a loop that he got stuck in, and that was it. So what did you do for Ken? Uh, machine gun punch, then, like, uh, do a jump down attack on him, then back off, and that pretty much always works. I mean, your machine gun punch won't always land, because he blocks it sometimes, but it'll override any of his other attacks. And that wouldn't have worked on Misuzu? No, it doesn't override her attacks. And she has a dash attack, too. And she can grab you. She might be... Yeah, she might be one of the few enemies that can counter it, then. Because I feel like whenever I try spamming the that guard kick, it always works. But I never tried it on her. 
Yeah, the only reason I break it out on Ken was because, as I said, I was doing this as a marathon last night, and I was just wanted to get through it. So I didn't really experience the fullest that the battle has to offer. Uh, but it was not that hard to to lock him into a strategy or to do the jump kick strategy on him, for that matter. If Ricky did die. Oh. Um, <clears throat> poor Ricky. Uh, I found that with Ken, um, the jump kick wasn't consistently workable because he would get into moods where he liked blocking. Did you ever experience that? Uh, I guess I didn't experiment with it long enough to see any of that. Okay. joining me everybody i think we had a fruitful podcast um before we go wario fan what is a mummy's favorite cookie oh um that, that it's uh um oreos all right uh <laughs> what is a mummy's favorite cookie My chocolate chip broke in half. Well, I'll just put a band-aid on it. <laughs> yeah, that's what mummies are known for. <laughs> Putting bandages on things. <laughs> it just is blue. Uh, Shouty, what would you say a mummy's favorite cookie is? Mummy biscuits? A mummy's favorite cookie. Yeah, well, like 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 a mummy treat. A mummy like treat. You, like like a like you'd give to a pet. Oh, like you would have like a dog biscuit, except with you know whatever mummies need. Yeah. To keep their teeth clean. Um, yourself, what is a mummy's favorite cookie? It's just chocolate chip. Okay. I don't get it. <laughs> you came up with that question. What's the actual <laughs> joke? <laughs> It's a it's a thought experiment more than anything, really. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> if you want to hear the real story behind it, it's that I was there's this marquee on my way to work. Sometimes has jokes on it. It's like at a gym. I don't know why they put jokes up on it, but one time I saw one that was "What is a mummy's favorite cookie?" But I didn't have time to read the punchline because, of course, I was driving by. And I've never been able to figure out what. The mommy's favorite cookie was. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll just have to stop in the gym sometime. Yeah, maybe they know. I figured that maybe uh, I would just ask a mommy. Do you know any mummies? The uh, Baltimore Science Center had a mummy exhibit. 
I don't, ask them. Okay. I don't think yeah. they're responsive. <laughs> they're on duty. You shouldn't <laughs> talk to them. They were like World War One mummies. It was pretty creepy. Hmm. Sounds scary. It, it was. <laughs> what are you scared of? They're dead. Yeah, that's friggin' creepy. <laughs> what are they gonna do? Have you never seen Mummies Alive? Yeah. I'm pretty sure they got, like, baseball caps in that, so... <laughs> <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> um, Sanrio's internet is failing. Does anyone want to impersonate her for the any final words? Oh... I don't, I don't think I'm... I don't think any of us could do an appropriate impersonation. Without being stereotypical or offensive. I can do one. Oh, don't no. do it. <laughs> I'm not... I'm not hearing this. <laughs> uh, yourself, any final words? Oh, wait. I thought I did have a final word about Shinniketsu. Uh Maybe I don't. Uh, no. No final words. None at all. Uh, Wario fan, any final words? Not this time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shouty, any final words? Did they have mummy biscuits at the exhibit you went to? No. None of the food was mummified. What a what shame. A opportunity. I know. Maybe for Ashens. <laughs> 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 All music on this podcast was taken from Shinniketsu Koha, Kuniotachi no Banka. I'll leave you with this final thought. We discussed health and score as different entities, but it's not uncommon for one to reflect on the other. For instance, getting a higher score may put you at risk of losing health, while earning a higher score might earn you more lives which equate to spare health bars. Devil May Cry has yet another layer. Perform well in combat and you get more cash. If you have more cash, you can spend more money on healing items to preserve your own health, and combat upgrades to quickly reduce your foe's health. The relationship between score and health often does a lot to speak on the tone of gameplay. If you have any comments or questions, shoot an email to vgcommune at gmail.com. I've got a question. Is anyone going to play any of the other uh, Cuneo games now? Might want to try Renegade. Well, yeah, I hear Golem's having a hard time of it. I, it's, the first Super Nintendo one has, like, RPG elements, right? Yeah, that one, you get level-ups, and there's a day-night system, and random battles, and uh, all around seemed like a game that I have no interest in playing. Yeah, I... <laughs> have tried multiple times to get into River City Ransom, but I super don't care, so I don't have any other interest in RPG Kumio games.
Yeah, luckily I beat River City Ransom at an age where I was accepting of games that had unnecessary RPG conventions. I think luckily. we all went that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, mainstream gaming media is still in that phase of their adolescence, I think. Hmm. That's why, like, Metroidvania is the best form of Castlevania. Because it has RPG elements. Well, that's the impression that I got, like, why games like Dust and Eterno Blade are better than Muramasa. Because they're real RPGs, and Muramasa was just a fake one. They have stats. Numbers. I almost want to get Evita just to play uh, Rebirth, so that I can play as the additional character. Mm-hmm. What's Vanilla Rare been doing recently? Well, Dragon's Crown came out oh, that's two years ago, and they only make a game every, like, four years, so... I guess those uh, assets don't make themselves. Uh, yeah, I guess Rebirth was, like, like the most recent thing. But, yeah, Dragon's Crown, and Dragon's Crown doesn't look all that amazing. No, it seems pretty like a standard beat-em-up RPG. Yeah, it actually looks like exactly what I was just complaining about, but it has RPG <laughs> elements. <laughs> well, I don't know, oh. people like it. Well, I know, I imagine I'll probably like it a lot, but I don't have a PS3. I would have played it already if I did, but it's the game that I have to buy a PS3 to play. Not or Last Vita. of Us. The Last of Us. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think I'm going to play The Last of Us. <laughs> what, what if I told you The Last of Us is just a super hardcore Kaneo game? <laughs> uh, Would you I run away it? very fast. <laughs> well, the Japanese title is really Shin Niketsu Downtown Niketsu. <laughs> yeah, you never do now. Final. Um, <laughs> if, if Shin Niketsu Koha takes Kunio and puts it in a story-based like, a story-heavy setting, then The Last of Us is the natural progression, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it is the epitome of a Cuneo game. <laughs> it, it's, it's just Technos made it themselves. <laughs> yeah. So glad we came to this conclusion. Naughty Dog is the new Technos. <laughs> Naughty Dog is the new Technos. If you've ever played the uh, the fighting parts in the Uncharted games, you would definitely agree with that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Kaneo had it all. It had the cover system. It had regenerating health, guns. Gun. There was one gun. <laughs> and my health regenerated whenever I died. <laughs> yeah, I, was... I saw the bar go up. I was kind of thinking about the uh, my strategy against Miss Suzu too as being a stealth strategy, since I was like tricking her into running past me and then sneaking up behind her. I was like, yeah, it's like I'm playing a stealth game. Cool. Like you're playing Metal Gear Solid. Oh, that's like yeah. in Thief when you club someone, you generally want to do it on the back of their head, right? Yeah, you don't want to club them in the dick or anything. <laughs> That won't knock them out. Well, it's not very polite. It's 
probably not something that a professional thief would really do. Regenerating health has an interesting impact on our discussion earlier, but I didn't want to dilute things further. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, if you say health is supposed to make you uh, experience a game in a certain, you know, a certain chunk of a game, regenerating health kind of undoes that. Yeah. The only time I've seen regenerating health outside of a first-person shooter was Celestia Mechanica. You remember that, right, Golem? Yeah, I don't remember fighting in it, though. Well, I mean, it has... It has that. It has regenerating health. I guess the idea is that you only have health that's relevant to this encounter, and the idea is that you're only supposed to regenerate between encounters. Mm-hmm. Because that's how it worked in Celestial Mechanica, right? Yeah. That's not how it works in general, though. Well, it's maybe not literally, but that's the effect they're going for, right? You're not supposed to just like, hide in the shadows the whole time? I don't know. I mean, you can definitely duck behind cover for long enough in a game like Modern Warfare. Duck behind cover for long enough to get your health back. Okay. Or yeah, but that's, that's in the midst of an encounter. Right. So... Uh, it's it's different, you know, uh, different games. Different than Celestial Mechanics. Yeah. Although I think FPSs have given regenerating health a bad name. I don't think it's an inherently broken concept. I just think that... I don't know that I've seen a game that uses it in a way that I feel is necessary. Mm-hmm. Or that adds to the game, I guess. The way it's using FPS is, is basically that... Nah, I don't even really understand how it's using FPS, is never mind. I think, uh... From my experience with GoldenEye Wii... So, the, generally speaking, there would either be big-time one enemies that would kill me really quickly, so regenerating health just didn't matter, and those segments were more about stealth. Um, or if there was a big room where I was flanked by enemies and stuff like that, uh, oftentimes it was just, if I tried to regenerate my health, I needed to be very careful how I did so, and, uh, choosing the right piece of cover and defending it properly was an interesting gameplay situation, and then, uh, that would give me some leeway with my health, where once I got some back, I could do some more run and gun. Wait, GoldenEye for Wii has regenerating health? On the... I think it's the bottom three difficulty levels, yes. Oh. Does it still have health packs? No. I don't know if they add health packs for the difficulty levels where you don't have regenerating health, but I never played those. Seems unlikely. Why not? Just seems like a weird element. No, no, no. Why, well, why didn't you play those difficulties? Oh, oh. This uh, one sucks. Because it was hard enough on easy. <laughs> also, Goldeneye Wii had this really stupid thing where... Um, so, naturally, the harder difficulty settings in a game like Goldeneye mean that you're going to have 
optional objectives to, or like, they will add objectives that you have to complete, except if you fuck up, uh, and like, oh, you can't clear this objective anymore, then instead of making you replay the level, they knock you down a difficulty and don't tell you. And I just like, if I was interested in first person shooters, I would invest myself in something like that, but as someone just trying to get their feet wet, uh, it really discouraged me from trying. Why don't you play Doom, then? That's such an archaic system. Wait, what is? The, not Doom, uh, the objective thing. The weird objectives. Yeah. That was modern. Having objectives? Do you have objectives anymore? It's like a GoldenEye Thief idea. That's like a late 90s concept. (sighs) Wait, but... You mean like in an open world? Objectives? No, no, no. So it'll be no. like in a level of Goldeneye, uh, on easy mode, your objective is obtain the secret document. And on hard mode, it'll be uh, obtain three secret documents and then knock out this guy guarding a tank and also get a photo of the helicopter. Well, that's kind of neat. Well, go play Goldeneye 64, then you'll love it. Yeah, 64 is the one that was, like, like people say that is a great game because it added... It was one of the first big objective-based FPSs, right? Yeah, as far as I know. What about Perfect Dark? Yeah, Perfect Dark has that, too. That's like Goldeneye 2, basically. It doesn't... I don't feel like Perfect Dark... Wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe Goldeneye is licensed property. <laughs> <laughs> Night 2, Perfect Dark. Maybe because I had just totally moved on by that point, but I guess I didn't notice the objectives very much in Perfect Dark. I mean, I put this is I played Golden Knight in N64 days. I played Perfect Dark like three years ago or two years ago or something. Yeah, I thought you didn't notice the objectives in Perfect Dark. Not that much, I don't feel like. I mean, there were definitely times when I didn't know how to beat a level. That was cool. I always liked that. <laughs> I like when there are timed levels with objectives. Oh, boy. Is there also an escort mission in that level? <laughs> I don't think Perfect Dark has escort missions. I don't know how they got away without them. Wait, what about the alien? Ah, uh, yeah, there is the alien. Well, Perfect Dark's not a very good game in that case. <laughs> what a squirt mission note drop. Is it in the podcast? What? Is that to be in the podcast? Are we still going? I think this is fruitful discussion for a post segment. This is all podcast material. I, I think we were just kind of finalized it, but then we kind of petered out into this. I'm definitely talking at podcast quality here. <laughs> so just normal quality. Um, regarding Doom, we also did not touch on uh, health restoratives in the podcast and how those influence uh, pacing. 
Yeah, I guess those are sort of a a midpoint between. <laughs> kind of undermines what we said about the health bar being a gauge from checkpoint to checkpoint, where health restoratives just add to your total health bar, so they're like mini checkpoints. You have to have survived up to the health restorative, but then you get that much extra health. Oh, I didn't think of it like that. Hmm. It's a it's a way of introducing leeway into the span between checkpoints. Yeah, I guess so. And the thing about a health restorative, I guess, is that it doesn't benefit a skilled player. Like, it doesn't give you points if you are, well, generally speaking, it doesn't give you points if you have full health setting. Sometimes it does, though. So that average... Yeah, that goes back to our, like, average player being about survival... And, uh, the average player needs the health restoratives. Cause they're playing, the, they're playing against the health bar. Whereas the skilled player is playing against the points meter. Ooh, score. Um, what's interesting about a game like Doom though, uh, certainly not about brawlers, uh, that in Doom, if health is a concern, the level takes on a different structure. So that there are different brands of exploration given your skill level. Oh. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely the case. You have to be able to... If you suck at shooting, you have to be able to look for stuff. <laughs> Who sucks at shooting? <clears throat> G-O-L-E-M. Wario fan? That doesn't spell Wario fan. Um, there are ants everywhere. In in Doom? <laughs> in the Doom I played, yeah. Actually in uh wait, what was it? Uh, Earth Defense Force twenty seventeen. I think that's a pretty good <laughs> tagline. There are ants everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, ants on top of buildings. Oh, what's going on? <laughs> In retrospect, uh, using Shinikitsu Koha for this topic of health was a really, really super good fit in that it removes a lot of the vagueness that you would get from, you know, if we were commuting Streets of Rage 2, then we would have to address health packs and stuff mm. like that. It's a super straightforward game in terms of player feedback. Uh, I wouldn't say super straightforward, just because of the character swapping mechanic that adds kind of a kink to it. That's you, okay. You do have to sort of switch into a different mode of play based on whether you have substantial health or low health, because you risk dying. But you're encouraged to... That That's standard for any game with a health bar, I guess, that you sort of have a... Or there's a chance you might have a switch of play when you um, get low on health. 
but the interesting thing that uh, Shinneketsu does by having multiple characters is that if you like playing as a particular character, if one has a particularly strong advantage, which we're all aware of, uh, <laughs> then you're encouraged to stick with it against that, um, like, low health balance and try to stick it out to use that character. So, if Ricky has a sliver of health left, uh, I might stick with him anyway, because his uh, million-man punch is really useful. Right. Are you still recording? Yes, just in mm. case, but this yes. might be the cutoff point. Say something uh, enlightening for us. Don't don't eat with ants. <laughs> it's all about ants with you these days. There are ants in our room. Because <laughs> that's where I eat. So I'm not going to eat in my room anymore. Does that mean you eat ants? I wouldn't mind eating ants if I didn't know where they were. <laughs> <laughs> 